Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Demas. And I'm Dana Lamagear. And today's topic, we're going to be digging deep into biblical archaeology. Yes, it's going to be great. Yeah. In Everyday Apologetics, we'll hear from John Bloom as he talks about the greatest hits of biblical archaeology. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. Mm -hmm. And in Science Faith Connection, Jeff Zorak will talk with John Bloom on Did the Shroud of Turin cover Jesus. First up will be culture talk. Sandra will be interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross on whether there's archaeological evidence for the Bible's accuracy. So let's go ahead and check that out. Now it's time for culture talk where we talk about culturally relevant topics you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with astrophysicist Hugh Ross. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. You know, you have a segment on our website called Questions from Social Media, and you take on questions from, well, from social media. Anyone who has questions, um, whether they're skeptics or Christians or from different faiths, and kind of a common question that gets asked just in general, but of you specifically, um, was that there isn't evidence for the Bible's accuracy. And you address this question, um, where this, the correspondent was specifically asking, what are some of the latest archeological scientific discoveries that affirm the historical reliability of the Bible? First, I love that our audience is really asking some thoughtful questions. This is a very important question. Um, so let's unpack. Well, it's two. interesting, mm -hmm. the context, so it came from a Christian yeah. who said, my atheist friend says, yep. there is no archeological oh, right. evidence mm -hmm. to support what the Bible is saying. Right. And so what I did is I actually went through her website and said, here are a dozen articles yeah. that talk about you know, new archeological discoveries that establish that the Bible got everything right. Well, let's unpack two of those. Okay. So I looked at your list um, and the ones that kind of jumped out at me were that were interesting because I want to see how they connect to the Bible because we can say, well, here's archaeological evidence, but how are we fitting it in with pointing to the Bible's reliability? So one of them is about human migration. So what does what archaeologists have discovered about human migration have anything to do with the Bible and its reliability? Well, it's Genesis 9, 10, and mm -hmm. 11. And uh, before Genesis 9, we got humanity in one locale. And when God says to Noah after the flood, hey, I told Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. They didn't do it. I'm now telling you and your descendants, multiply and fill the earth. Mm -hmm. And you read Genesis 11, they said, we're not going to do this. Mm -hmm. We're going to build a city and a tower so we will not be dispersed over the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And you know, God says, okay. I'm going to knock down your tower and I'm going to scatter you over the face of the earth. And Genesis 10 basically describes in detail the scattering of the descendants of Noah over the different regions of the earth. We now have DNA evidence mm. to sustain that that really happened. Uh, it happened very aggressively and suddenly. Mm -hmm. And at the time, that would be consistent with Noah's uh, immediate descendants. And they've even been able to use the DNA evidence to describe the migration routes, which are basically along the south coast of Asia and the west coast of North and South mm -hmm. America, and then on into Australia. And uh, it's very rapid. We're talking less than a thousand years wow. for this yeah. migration to occur. And, uh, but it shows you that early humans were just as smart as we were. They mm -hmm. figured out where the easy migration routes would be. Mm -hmm. And I grew up on the west coast of uh, British Columbia 
And I remember my dad taking me when I was a little kid uh, out to this desolate beach. There's nobody around. It's pouring rain. He says, I'm going to show you how easy it is to survive here. So oh, yeah. he actually showed us how we can get dry wood out of the driftwood, mm -hmm. get it out of the core, build a lean-to. Lean-to is to protect the fire, not us. Uh -huh. Got the fire going, then we built a big lean-to for us so we could stay mm -hmm. dry. Then he said, go out and catch the clams and oysters. There's your food. There's berries growing along there. The onions are all edible. Wow. The wild lilies and onions. So we had all the food we needed. And uh, when you're walking along a coast, you're typically walking on gravel or sand, mm -hmm. which makes for rapid migration. Your food's taken care of. So it's consistent with what the genetic evidence tells mm -hmm. us, what the Bible tells us, that indeed uh, humans were rapidly scattered over all the different regions of the continental land masses, mm -hmm. and at the time that the Bible says that it happened. Well, you know, you bring up another one um, in your article, and it is about human origins. So what archeological evidence about human origins also points to the Bible's reliability. Well, it's interesting about that, Sandra, mm -hmm. you actually get a more accurate date for the origin mm -hmm. of humanity in the Bible than we do the science. Now, the science has got uh, carbon-14 dating, mm -hmm. which is a direct dating tool, mm -hmm. which establishes that humans have been here on the Earth for maybe as far back as 40, 45,000 years. Mm -hmm. 40,000, certainly, and maybe you can push it to 45. But to get another direct radiometric tool, you have to go back 250 to 300,000 years ago. Mm. In between, all you've got are indirect methods that have really big systematic errors. And so when you read the scientific literature, they'll say, hey, the date we have for the origin of humanity is 300,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. But if you actually read the fine print, it's 150,000 plus or minus 150,000 years ago. Wow. So you got this wide range, yeah. very uncertain. What you get from Genesis chapter 2 mm -hmm. is that God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it tells us it's a location where four known rivers come together. It mm -hmm. tells us where the rivers flow from, names the rivers, which we all know exist today. Two are dry, two are still flowing. All four would have been flowing during the last ice age. Mm -hmm because it would have all been fed by melting snow and ice. And, but they come together in the Garden of Eden. The only location where they come together is more than 200 feet below sea level in the Persian Gulf. But during the last ice age, that would have been above sea level. So that tells us, according to the Bible, God created Adam and Eve mm -hmm. sometime during the last ice age. See, can you be more specific? Mm -hmm. Well, the earliest archaeological evidence we have for humans, some of it is in the Persian Gulf area, mm -hmm. some of it is in East Africa. There were three epochs during the last ice age where there was easy migration for humans mm -hmm. to travel from one place to the other. There would have been a land bridge joining Arabia uh, to Africa, for example, and uh, the Gihon would have been flowing and it would have been easy to walk up that uh, back and forth from Africa uh, to the uh, Persian Gulf uh, region. But those dates fall between about 60,000 and 117,000 years ago, three different epochs, a few thousand years wide. Mm -hmm. uh, but notice, we're getting more accurate dates from the Bible 
than we get from the scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. But they're consistent. Mm -hmm. 150 plus or minus 150,000 years ago is consistent with the last ice age of 15 to 130,000 years ago. And actually something like 60 to 117 would be even more precise than that. Wow. So that's a, there's a lot of numbers thrown at me right now, but it sounds like where one is not negating the other, but they're actually coming together. They're consistent. So. They're both. So the scientific evidence, the best mm -hmm. scientific evidence we have is consistent with what the Bible has been teaching. Mm -hmm. And also, brand new, is we're now finding uh, that it wasn't just recent humans mm -hmm. that had technology. Even people during the last ice age had technology, but it's only recently been discovered. Mm -hmm. For example, bread making, we can now date back to about 35,000 years ago. Wow. But it's the tiniest bit of evidence, because mm -hmm. bread making would be far more challenging for people during an ice age than during an interglacial. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that it's difficult to find the archaeological evidence, but we're now beginning to find that what it says in Genesis chapter 4, that early humans were involved in reasonably sophisticated technology, mm -hmm. actually is accurate. And that technology is like making bread. Like making bread, mm -hmm. like making tools. Yeah. We're now finding evidence that the Inui in northern Canada mm -hmm. were harvesting stainless steel meteorites. Oh, wow. And shaping them into sophisticated tools. Wow. So stainless steel cutlery. Yeah, uh, sure, why dates not? back uh, <laughs> at least 10,000, not 12,000 wow. years ago. Wow, well, thank you so much for that. So if you want to hear more from Hugh Ross, go to reasons.org, and you can search for his blog, Today's New Reason to Believe, and you can also look for his articles on questions from social media. Again, teaching archaeology, I sometimes get asked this question. It's like, okay, so, you know, if... You, what 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 do you wish could be found, right, to confirm the Bible? What you know, if if you could just go pick anything that you'd want, what do you wish could be found? And usually I answer, well, the book of Deuteronomy, signed by Moses, dated about fourteen hundred BC, be awesome. Okay, but I actually think there's something better than that. Uh, I'm an Old Testament person, so that would be my leaning. But I think we've actually been given something better than that in the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And again, you're probably familiar with the history for this. Um, the first scrolls were found by some Bedouin shepherd boys trying to find a lost goat. So they were throwing rocks into the caves in the um, wadi and heard a pot crack when they threw it into one of the caves, came back and found these pots, um, jars that had um, scrolls in them. And one of the scrolls was in incredible shape. It was actually wrapped in tar to, to preserve it from moisture even. Um, but they, they took these seven scrolls back and just a fun story. They, the quality of them was so good that they toyed with making them in the shoes. It's one of the stories that's told about them anyhow. But um, the, the best scroll in that initial lot is considered the greatest discovery in archaeology in the 20th century, at least. And this is the Great Scroll of Isaiah. Um, it's the whole scroll, okay? It, it's the only Dead Sea Scroll that's got a complete Bible text in it. In fact, they thought it was 
when it was first discovered, they thought it was a forgery or, or taken from some old synagogue, okay, because it's so good in terms of its preservation, again, and it's, and it's so complete. And, and um, just to focus on one passage here, the, the power of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that it's, it shows the highly accurate copying that the Hebrew scribes did for about a thousand years, okay? Because prior to discovering, say, the Isaiah scroll, um, the next earliest Old Testament Hebrew texts that we had were Codex and the Aleppo Codex, date to about 900 to 1000 AD. So we've got the Isaiah scroll that's a thousand years earlier than anything we had before. And what does it show? shows that all the stories that the Masoretes told about how accurately and painstakingly they worked to copy these texts by hand was paying off because just in chapter 33, there's only a tiny number of differences between the 1000 AD text and the 150 BC text, okay, 1500 years earlier. They're mainly spelling differences in terms of how you would place the vowels in the text, so it doesn't affect the meanings of the words at all. Um, stylistic changes. There's there's one word difference that um, actually clarifies something that was in the um, in in some other texts in terms of having light in that verse. But again, radiocarbon dating and paleographic dating of the handwriting puts these things at about 150 BC. So so we're looking at a text of Isaiah, which is not been tampered with by Jews after Jesus nor by Christians after Jesus as well. We've got, we've got the book of Isaiah from well over a century before the time of Christ. So, so what's the significance of Isaiah? Well, to me, and I was talking with Ken on this in an interview before, the theological implications of the book of Isaiah, are, it's probably the, the most important book theologically for talking about the Messiah in the Old Testament. So if you're going to have one book out of the Old Testament that's preserved as an archaeological find, this is the one that you want to have because it talks about, well, you'll see, guess, yeah. Um, it's the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. It talks about a person who's despised, who's shunned by men, who, who bears our sickness, who endures our suffering, okay? And he was wounded because of our sins, by his bruises, we were healed. And the Lord has visited upon him the guilt of all of us. And he was cut off, that's murdered, killed, okay, out of the land of the living. Through the sin of my people, they were the ones who deserved the punishment. About probably the most theologically significant aspect of the Christian faith, the Messiah, is him coming to die as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And it's there most clearly in Isaiah 53. Who in history fits that Isaiah 53 prophecy other than Jesus of Nazareth? And, and that's the striking thing is we have Isaiah giving this prediction about God's going to send someone to atone for your sin so that God can forgive you and so on, so that you can be blessed and rejoice. 
And, and the factor with that is that Jesus doesn't just show up out of Nazareth one day and says, hi, I'm here to die for you, right? There's this culture that's been prepared for centuries to look for him, to expect him, to be told what he would do, that he would be the redeemer of their sins. And so when John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, everybody knew what he was talking about because of this strong prediction that we have there in Isaiah. And we've got a text from well over a century before Jesus actually shows up to give us proof that that prophecy, that prediction was not tampered with, was not, you know, toyed with later church or something like that, but actually was a good description of what the Messiah came to do. So to wrap up, again, what, what's, what's the goal of biblical archaeology? Um, well, there's all kinds of fun facts that you can talk about for days, you know, about culture and times and history and so on. But again, for me, part of it is, is, well, wait a second, you know, just how reliable is the Bible in this regard? And then, you know, how trustworthy is, is there a God behind it? And how trustworthy is he? Because is the story of our redemption and salvation, is that real or is that just invented? And, and unfortunately, there's questions it cannot answer, like, well, was the tomb empty or something like that? We know where the tomb was. Um, that's not a problem. But again, the evidence for some claim like that we don't have. We, we don't have evidence like what Thomas had. Here, Tom, stick your hand in my side, okay? I don't want you to be doubting about this. So we, no, we don't get evidence like that. But, but notice the trend in what fragments of evidence from the past we are able to get as we find a new puzzle piece, it actually, oh, fills in one of those throwaway details, clarifies something that we might not have understood about the text before, makes, makes that aspect a bit more real than what I would have possibly imagined it to be. And as we keep finding these, again, not millions of pieces, but as we find the pieces that we do find, to me, after a while, again, it just sort of becomes this, this is stuff that really happened. And, and it just sort of becomes a point, for me at least, where, you know, it takes less faith to trust that Jesus really came and really did what the prophecy said he was going to do than, than to be that minimal skeptic that's throwing it all away and having the grudging, oh, well, I guess that maybe that happened or something like that. So it just takes less faith, I think, to trust in Jesus than to be a skeptic overall, and that he really did rise from the dead as the prophecies and so on foretold. Hello, Jeff Zwerink. Welcome again to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we explore important scientific ideas and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John Bloom, and we're going to be discussing the Shroud of Turin. John, it's good to have you here today. It's great to be here. So, I know you're you're a uh, professor of physics at Biola University. I know you have some other educational credentials. Kind of tell me a little bit about your education background, if you will. 
Yeah, for this topic, it's probably the ancient Near Eastern studies. I got a doctorate in that as well, which includes archaeology, and I've done theology. So, so yeah, it's physics, but you know, a bunch of other things in there as well. So, <laughs> sounds pretty interesting. So, Shroud of Turin. Uh, just to kind of get our audience up to speed, what is the Shroud of Turin, and why does this have any relevance to Christianity? Well, it's a piece of linen, 14 feet long, three and a half feet wide, that claims to be the burial shroud or cloth uh, for Jesus. And um, it has this incredible image on it. Uh, probably everybody's seen pictures of this, of, uh, of, a, of a man who's been very severely beaten and flogged and then crucified. And there's even evidence of like a crown of thorn on his head. So um it's it's pretty spectacular in that regard in terms of what the image seems to be showing so th this sounds like pretty potent evidence for the truth of christianity if this is indeed Jer jesus burial cloth i mean everybody knows that jesus was crucified so what evidence is this that this might have been connected with jesus and are there other cloths like this that have images like this or is this a unique thing Oh, that's, that's a good point. Um, well, let me give you the evidence for it, first of all. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating to me is that the, the nail wounds in the body are consistent with how we know people were crucified back in Roman times, uh, particularly that the nails were, were in the, here in the wrist not in the palm of the hand as is so often portrayed in, in pictures. So, so that's an aspect of uh, historicity that's right about this thing. That knowledge was lost by medieval times. How exactly was a body hung on a cross? Right. So, so that's pretty spectacular. Um, in addition to the image of the body, there's images of flowers on the cloth as well that are... Um, flowers from the area of Judea that bloom in the spring. So it's like, it's, so it's not just a body image, there's these flower images there that are well. And again, the weave of the cloth, and there's pollen from Judea and limestone from Judea. So there's a number of aspects to it. Uh, it appears to be real blood. Some people have said maybe it's not human blood. So those are all the things that are pretty significant in, it, in its favor, I guess one could say. So, so this uh, sounds like it may not be a unique claim. I mean, is there evidence against this being? I, I recall hearing at some point that carbon-14 dating put that about seven, 800 years ago. What, is there evidence against this being the burial cloth of Jesus? Yeah, that, that's probably the major one for it. Um, in 1988, they did carbon dating, and it came up with about a 1300 AD date for the cloth. Um, which again is about the time it was first shows up in France. So, so that's probably the major evidence that you'll see people give against it. Um, another evidence is just his features in the anatomy. Uh, he seems to be too tall. The person is too tall for the average Jewish person around, you know, AD 30. So, so there's some features there. Um, Again, responses to it are, well, carbon-14 subject to contamination. Um, in a recent article, I just, I just came across that um, uh, guy in Italy, scientist in Italy did 
some x-ray dating. It's a non-destructive technique where you measure how much the, the linen has oxidized over time. Okay. And, and uh, that method is compatible with it being 2,000 years old and not a medieval cloth. So, so again, that's what makes this thing so interesting is how this image ever get formed and then could it possibly be legitimate? And then what do you do with the carbon-14 dating? Of course, other, other things that people say with the carbon-14 is that the shroud has been mended and repaired. So, so is what they're dating um, part of the original cloth you know, from 2,000 years ago? So, so lots of responses to that. Um, so what is your take if this turns out to, or kind of sounds like there's a good evidence for it being the burial cloth. Uh, if it turns out for or against, how, do, how does that impact your confidence in the truth of Christianity? Does this weigh in one way or the other for you? Yeah. Um, let, let me just mention one more thing that's kind of against it. The, the Gospel of John, where Peter and John run to the tomb and look inside, John specifically mentions the burial cloths. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to fit the description of a single piece, mm. you know, wrapped over him. And John says that he was, the, the women laid him with spices and he had, a, there was a head covering that's fairly typical. So one piece of cloth showing everything with no spices kind of goes against the biblical account. Gotcha. Um, but, but yeah, does this affect the truth of Christianity? Um, I, I don't think it does. Um, if, if it's genuine, and you kind of mentioned this at the beginning, if it's genuine, it proves that Jesus died by crucifixion. Well, well, just about everybody grants that, you know? So, good. Right. We've got evidence that he died by crucifixion. Um, does it prove that he raised from the dead? Um, I, I don't think it directly speaks to that. You know, how the image got there is is interesting, but I don't see that proving the resurrection in any way. So well, thanks, John. I really appreciate your comments. You know, the Shroud of Turin has been discussed as evidence for the truth of Christianity for a long time. And it really does seem like there's good evidence to indicate this might actually be the burial cloth of Jesus. But what it would ultimately show is that Jesus was actually crucified, and most people seem to agree on that anyway. Uh, but it is something that we need to be careful does not distract us so that we end up worshiping the relic rather than the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I'd encourage you to go to reasons.org. John Bloom's one of our visiting scholars. Search for John Bloom. That's J-O-H-N-B-L-O-O-M. You'll get links to a number of other articles he's produced, uh, some resources that he's developed, and ways that help encourage you to be confident of the truth of Christianity so you can go share it with others. We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence. You know, I enjoyed this conversation. It was really cool to hear how things that we wouldn't think are connected to pointing to the Bible's reliability, that they are. Like things that are discovered in archaeology right. point to biblical uh, reliability. Pretty mm -hmm. cool. It's really cool to see like things that are from history also like yeah. oh yeah the bible talks about that yeah. too so yeah. it's, it was a really good one and don't forget subscribe to the show and search for us on facebook twitter and instagram we are at 2819 show we'd love to hear your thoughts and if you want the audio version of the show you can find us on most major podcast services just search reasons to believe podcast see you next week see ya